0: Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. friends, thanks for tuning in. Today's story is about an Indian utopia that's over 50 years old, but still very much a work in progress. Oroville is an intentional community on the southeast coast of India near Pondicherry. Around 3,000 people live there, half of them Indian and the other half hailing from almost 60 different countries. It sits on a plateau overlooking the Bay of Bengal, a plateau which was a barren desert wasteland that over the decades, the town's denizens have transformed into a lush garden by drilling wells, digging irrigation canals, placing dams to keep water from cascading over the edge of the plateau, and planting millions of trees. The community is arranged in a wheel at the center of which is the Matramandir a giant golden golf ball-shaped meditation center reaching almost 100 feet high. Arranged in concentric circles around it are the residential zone, an industrial zone, a cultural and educational zone, and an international zone. Outside of that is a green belt. Twelve radial roads extend outward through the zones. Sound familiar? To me, it's very similar to Walt Disney's original design for Epcot. It was founded in the late 60s, like so many of these experimental communes, 1968 to be specific. But on this journey, first we have to go all the way back to the turn of the 20th century in Paris, where we find the mother. As a girl growing up in France, Mira Alfaso wasn't raised religiously, but at age 13, she began having supernatural out-of-body experiences that involved flying through Paris healing sick people. And she had recurring visions of a man in white robes with bare feet, who she took to calling Krishna. As she got older, she dove into ancient Indian texts and discovered an intense passion for Eastern spirituality. She also studied occultism. Later, her husband, who was a lawyer with political ambitions, traveled to India as he considered running for office to represent Pondicherry, which was a French colony in India, one that had been wrangled back and forth between French and English colonial forces over the years, obviously with tragic consequences for the native Tamil population. Mira's husband returned from a trip with a story for his wife about meeting a great Indian sage. And in 1914, the pair visits Pondicherry, with Mira very eager to meet this sage. The day she arrives, she walks the streets and finally encounters a man in white robes, the very man she calls Krishna, whom she's been seeing in her visions for years. Okay, friends, does this sound believable? No, it does not. Does it sound like something a French lady would make up to insert herself into a mystical, spiritual fantasy narrative to gain notoriety and followers? Yes, it does. (laughs) She also claimed in one of many books she would go on to write that her intervention with the goddess Kali in 1914 had prevented the German army's capture of Paris. But nonetheless, Mira Alfasa did in fact meet an Indian yogi called Sri Aurobindo. She returned to France with her husband, but a few years later came back to Pondicherry and decided to stay on without her husband and join Sri Aurobindo in his fledgling ashram. Sri Aurobindo had been educated at Cambridge. And on returning to India, fought for independence from colonial rule. This landed him in hot water with the British. And after he either was released or escaped from prison, this detail depends on who you ask. He headed for the French controlled Pondicherry and focused on spiritual practice. He spent most of his time sequestered, practicing yoga, meditating, reading, and producing copious written works which eventually coalesced into his new spiritual philosophy called Integral Yoga. As suggested by the name, this practice he developed with a synthesis or reworking of different ancient yoga practices and philosophies that he fused together into a new system. If you want to understand what this practice is all about, I'm afraid you'll have to devote some significant effort into working your way through some hefty volumes like The Synthesis of Yoga, The Life Divine, and Savitri. Sorry, I don't have a shortcut for you on that one. But his many enduring works have cemented his place as a titan of modern Indian philosophy. Back to our story. By now, it's 1926, and while Sri Aurobindo retreats into solitude for his spiritual work and prolific writing, he dubs Mira Alfasa the mother who by now has the role of his spiritual collaborator, and she takes over day-to-day administration of the ashram, which she's highly successful at. Over the course of the next few decades, she grows the ashram to 1,200 disciples of the emerging integral yoga, making it one of the largest ashrams in India. The guru's writings make him a well-known philosopher in India, though he stays isolated, granting just four days a year for the ashram's devotees to see him in person. But in 1950, Sri Aurobindo dies. No more master. The mantle passes to the mother, now 78 years old. She continues to expand and grow the ashram, and it thrives under her leadership. The mother had been thinking about a model community for a while, a new town where people from all over the world could live in harmony and practice integral yoga. She wrote the following in a document called The Dream. There should be somewhere on Earth, a place which no nation could claim as its own, where all human beings of goodwill, who have a sincere aspiration... Could live freely as citizens of the world and obey one single authority, that of the Supreme Truth. A place of peace, concord, and harmony, where all the fighting instincts of man would be used exclusively to conquer the causes of his sufferings and miseries, to surmount his weaknesses and ignorance, a place where the needs of the spirit and the concern for progress would take precedence over the satisfaction of desires and passions, the search for pleasure and material enjoyment. Beauty in all its artistic forms—painting, sculpture, music, literature—would be equally accessible to all. The ability to share in the joy it brings would be limited only by the capacities of each one and not by social and financial position. For in this ideal place, money would no longer be the sovereign lord. Individual worth would have a far greater importance— than that of material wealth and social standing. Call this dream utopian, if you will. It is utopian. The ideal world can never exist. It's always one step ahead of itself, in an overleaping ambition, a grasping aspiration that exceeds its ability to manifest. Still, so many great advances begin that way, with a vision of the seemingly unattainable, We act only under the fascination of the impossible, writes E.M. Toron, the Romanian philosopher of utopia. I want to stay with the dream for now. I want to follow its potential and see how long I can hold on to it, and see, too, if I can rescue it from what comes later. The mother pulled together a group of followers to become the Committee for Yoga and be the legal owners of the new town Oroville, named of course for Sri Aurobindo, but also a portmanteau of French words for dawn and city. Oroville is sometimes called the City of Dawn. Through the Committee for Yoga, a chunk of land near Pondicherry was purchased. The land was a hot, dusty desert, supposedly cursed into a barren wasteland by some offense against a holy man long ago. A French modernist architect, Roger Onger is brought in and works with the mother and a team of planners to produce plans for the city. The original plans were ambitious to say the least, featuring futuristic monorails, moving sidewalks, skyscrapers, and even facilities to host the Olympics. A utopia for 50,000 evolving humans, showing the world how to live in unity. But with only a few million dollars raised out of the billions needed to fund the project, they started a bit smaller. 500 workers from surrounding villages worked around the clock in the months ahead of Oroville's inauguration, excavating an amphitheater and a few miles of roads and water pipes. On the big day, 5,000 people arrived by bus, car, bicycle, and on foot along with representatives from foreign aid agencies and governments around the world. Why would world governments be interested in this, you ask? It's hard today to imagine governments getting behind a utopian experimental community like this, but the Indian government promised to back the project. Even the Soviet Union expressed support after sufficient reassurance that this was not a religious endeavor. Oroville had been pitched as an important project to figure out how humanity can live together in peace. The why can't we all just get along to World War II's nihilism? And at the time, I guess Oroville proved to be a convincing vehicle and money was put up to develop the new model city by various governments and aid organizations. The charter of Oroville was read out in 16 languages at the inauguration event. This is The Charter. Oroville belongs to nobody in particular. Oroville belongs to humanity as a whole. But to live in Oroville, one must be a willing servitor of the divine consciousness. Oroville will be the place of an unending education, of constant progress, and a youth that never ages. Oroville wants to be the bridge between the past and the future. Taking advantage of all discoveries from without and from within, Oroville will boldly spring towards future realizations. Oroville will be a site of material and spiritual researches for a living embodiment of an actual human unity. In this new city, the mother thought, humankind would evolve. The most critical aspect we need to consider to understand a little bit about the philosophy of Oroville is human spiritual evolution. This came from Sri Aurobindo's integral yoga teachings and is fundamental to the premise of the community. The basic idea is this, and again, this does not at all pay service to Sri Aurobindo's actual writings. Just consider this like a cliff's notes of a cliff's notes of a cliff's notes. <laughs> But in contrast to the traditional Indian notion of liberating oneself from the endless cycle of death and rebirth to transcend a higher planes of existence, he thought the true purpose of creation is actually a higher evolution in this plane. He developed a concept that he based on the Hindu Vedas called the supermind, which is a power within us that bridges or mediates between the infinite and finite realms, the Brahman absolute reality and the manifested world we know. And he proposed that the world, including humans, will evolve into basically a different world and a different species in the future via this supermind. And achieving this state of evolution manifests the divine on earth. Again, rather than transcending to other planes of existence to access the divine and be liberated from the manifested world. This is a vast oversimplification of the concept, but my understanding is that this spiritual evolution idea underpins the very core of Oroville's existence. After Oroville's inauguration ceremony, the next important order of business was to raise more funds and, of course, to find some willing idealists to move in. Early Oroville was bleak, with only hints of the necessities for survival in such a harsh environment—food, water, shelter. The first settlement was just mud huts with thatched roofs. Mosquitoes, rats, and poisonous snakes and spiders kept them company, and they hauled water on bicycles from miles away. They got sick with dysentery, pneumonia, giardia, and parasites. The settlers have an unfortunate habit of refusing medical attention, instead preferring to heal themselves by staring at pictures of the mother, which it turns out would lead to quite a bit of suffering from treatable illness and injury, and a couple of deaths. After Sri Aurobindo's death, the mother had started to expand on his ideas and develop her own system of yoga, yoga of the cells. Over the years, she'd begun to believe that to attain the next level of evolution per integral yoga, the body would also need to be completely physically transformed, starting from the smallest unit of the cells. She even believed this to be the key to immortality. That she would never die, just transform. So here's the thing. Oroville may have a trans-religious goal, but I think to get in on this, you'd just have to be fundamentally comfortable with this style of spirituality. Like, I don't see a group of, I don't know, evangelical Christians, just for example, being cool with this. I know Christians who think doing yoga is evil and anti-Christian, even just the American despiritualized exercise-slash-wellness-TM version of yoga. Of course, those same people also think Harry Potter is a demonic book about actual witchcraft, but you know… The world is getting a bit less religious generally, at least statistically, but I think for most people, their religion is just much too specific for anything like this. That may be one reason why Oroville was built for 50,000 people yet half a century on still has an actual population of about 3,000. Over the years, the early Orovilleans worked their way up from an extremely hardscrabble existence of dust and meager subsistence living and began to see the fruits of their labors, finding places for successful wells, planting crops that they could finally water, and building more huts and facilities for communal meals, meditation, and recreation. The first residents kept themselves going on the dream, the potential to realize their utopia. They saw it as a seismic shift in how human beings could live, which is interesting because it sounds more like the past than the future to me. Mud huts, subsistence farming, but that's the whole thing. They had a vision and they were true believers. Over the years, the houses and buildings became more sophisticated and architecturally interesting and some modern amenities and conveniences arrived. One of the surprising things about Oroville is that it was developed almost completely after the death of its founder, the mother. In fact, because of her poor health toward the end of her life, the mother never actually set foot in Oroville. She remained at the ashram in Pondicherry, directing from afar. She passed away in 1973, just five years after the town's inauguration. But her followers continued on, leaderless, and have more or less maintained a decentralized system of self-governance ever since. The mother's death came as a big shock to her devotees, despite her advanced age and years of illness, as they'd been led to believe that she wasn't ever going to die, thanks to her yoga of the cells. They had a very difficult time accepting that she had in fact died, but ultimately they were convinced that her vision must still be carried out. It took 20 years to build up a population of 400. The first children of Oroville were given on-brand names like Oro-Sun, Aurora, Oro-Kumar, Oro-Carl, and Oro-Lewis. Two of these children died, both by drowning, which led to some very strange and culty events. The first baby of Oroville was born when the mother was still alive, and she named him Oroson. No pressure, but he was viewed as the first of a new species of evolved human being. All the hopes of these optimistic and mystically inclined adults wrapped up in one little bundle. Tragically, he drowned as a toddler. This didn't fit the narrative, so the mother came up with a fix. When the doomed child's parents were ready to have another child, she would simply transfer Oro-Sun's soul into the new body. The couple had another baby and the mother reincarnated Oro-Sun into this baby, of course also named Oro-Sun. When another young child, Oro-Lewis, also drowned when playing alone and unsupervised in a partially built well, The community figured it had something to do with the fact that he was seen talking with Oro's son, the second one that is, and that it must mean Oro Lewis went to the well to drown so he too could then be reincarnated. By this time, the mother had died, so she wasn't around to transfer him into a new body. Oro Lewis's mother had to accept that he wouldn't be coming back but refused to question his drowning, as that would be tantamount to questioning the mother. Sadly, she would later die in Oroville under questionable circumstances as well. Meanwhile, people kept coming to Oroville, many of them spiritual seekers and hippies from America and Europe. In another 20 years, there were a couple thousand residents, and today, about 3,000 call Oroville home. They have no paper money, but rely on electronic accounts, and there seems to be a bit of confusion over who actually controls the funds. The goal is a moneyless society, but for now, residents are expected to contribute to the community financially, and many of them do so by returning to their country of origin for a few months out of the year to work. That's on top of financial support from the Indian government, outside donations, and money spent by visitors. Applicants to move to Oroville face a two-year trial period living in the community, working for free to prove they're serious, which sort of begs the question of who can even afford to apply. At the end of two years, a committee decides whether to approve an application. Residents don't own their homes exactly, but they do pay to become stewards of their homes with a mandatory donation, whatever that means the town operations are organized by loose, self-formed committees and working groups. I can certainly applaud the attempt to do away with bureaucracy, but not having anyone in charge of anything can prove to be frustrating as well. The Orovillians' collective hard work and determination over 50 years seems to have paid off in at least one way. The town is known as an incredible feat of ecological restoration, There was that old legend about a snubbed holy man cursing the place to be a barren desert, but actually, European colonists had deforested the area, leading to its downfall. Now, it's 1,300 acres of lush forest and sustainable agriculture. Oroville also focuses on sustainable construction, watershed management, and renewable energy, as well as a number of sociocultural initiatives but the path forward hasn't necessarily been a smooth one. Various controversies and internal rifts have rocked Oroville repeatedly over the years. In 1988, the Oroville Foundation Act established the town as a legal entity and outlined a plan for the residents, a governing board of citizens and government appointees, and a five-member international advisory council to collaborate on the running of Oroville. And the central government of India appoints a secretary to the foundation. This setup worked okay for a few decades, but in December 2021, some serious dysfunction came to a head when bulldozers started knocking down trees and structures in Oroville at 1 a.m., which is all the more alarming when you realize that some of these trees had people living in them in treehouses. Chianti Ravi was appointed as the new secretary to the Oroville Foundation in July 2021. She's on a mission to implement the mother's original plan of accommodating 50,000 people in Oroville, and in her interpretation, this means completing the Crown Road, a road circling the city center and connecting all four of the zones. Unfortunately, moving ahead with the Crown Project meant bulldozing trees and the community's youth center. And doing it in the middle of the night isn't a great look. The secretary is, of course, backed by the central government, which appointed her. But the seemingly unilateral decision making is at odds with the Oroville Foundation Act, which stipulated a balance between the governing bodies, including the residents. Many residents oppose the project because they don't believe the Crown Road, as originally envisioned, fits with Oroville's needs today, and that development threatens the biodiversity of their forest and water catchment systems. In some ways, this isn't a new argument. There has long been underlying disagreement over whether the vision can only be achieved through an exact execution of the original master plan, called the Galaxy Plan, or whether more pragmatic decisions need to be made to move the community forward with a more flexible but sustainable approach, prioritizing environmental and cost concerns, rather than clinging to a futuristic vision that may not be practicable. This dynamic has largely kept development stalled in recent decades. The current Prime Minister of India seems to have energized a renewed interest in Sri Aurobindo as the country celebrated his 150th birth anniversary last year. However, some fear the sudden increase in government involvement and interest in Auroville and its namesake is fueled by a push to co-opt Sri Aurobindo's legacy, recasting him as a champion for the Hindu nationalist government, which believes that India should be a Hindu state not a secular one. Some Orovillians also worry that the government might turn their town into a cash cow for spiritual tourism. Unfortunately, the situation has brought to a head fissures in the town over how to best interpret and implement the mother's vision and who gets to decide. The mother has been dead for almost 50 years, so it's tough to say just how she would have liked to proceed at this point in time. The community's loose style of governance is now on a collision course with a more authoritarian approach to development in Oroville. But many residents say relationships have soured and that it's tearing their community apart. But Orovillians are also the first to admit they have a long way to go if Oroville is truly to be a beacon of human unity. And recent divisions over the direction of their town are hardly the first bumps in the road to utopia. A few murders have taken place, including one in 2010 seemingly, involving a gang from a nearby village which dumped the head of their victim in Oroville's City Hall. Oroville has a few security guards, but not a police force, and they prefer to handle criminal issues internally and avoid police and the courts. In 2008, the BBC produced a critical segment on Oroville which aired allegations that the community had a pedophile problem. Oroville contested the allegations and lodged a complaint against the BBC, but the complaint was not upheld. After the controversy, Oroville implemented a child protection service. And in the 1980s, a couple who were longtime residents of Oroville, John Walker and Diane Mays, both died strange and tragic deaths on the same day which you can learn all about in a book by Akash Kapoor called Better to Have Gone, Love, Death, and the Quest for Utopia in Oroville." The author and his wife grew up in Oroville, left and made lives for themselves as adults in New York City, and then 20 years later, they moved back to Oroville and are raising their own sons there. But when they were kids in Oroville, his wife's parents, the aforementioned John Walker and Diane Mays, had died. Her brother was also Oro Lewis, the boy who drowned in the well. So they spent 10 years researching Oroville, digging up tons of old documents and letters and interviewing people, trying to figure out what actually happened before he wrote this book. So it's chock full of information about Oroville, sort of told through the lens of investigating these strange deaths that many blame on the community and their anti-medicine beliefs. But it's a really interesting book from an inside perspective on Oroville. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Despite the controversies, Oroville is still here. It's outlasted so many of its 1960s cohort of thousands of experimental communes and intentional communities, and it has been successful in many ways. Still, it's not exactly a paragon of human unity and radical spiritual evolution. I can't say it's a utopia. But I can't say it's not when the fact that it's a work in progress is baked into the essence of the community. They don't claim to have reached their destination, but if they're on a path of evolution, I guess it's gonna be a pretty windy road. As Kapoor puts it in his book, some people think of Oroville as a utopia, but the people who live there, including my wife and me, reject this label. Utopia is a place that's perfect and that doesn't exist. Oroville is real and highly humanly imperfect. I guess it would be more appropriate to say that Oroville is an aspiring utopia. Well, there you have it. Any of you ready to move to Oroville? If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at Pod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.